Hello, readers. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this is a bookend brought to you by Quail Ridge Books, Raleigh, North Carolina's trusted community bookstore. My guest today is award-winning journalist Phoebe Zerwick. Her work has been featured in O Magazine, National Geographic, The Nation, Winston-Salem Journal, and Glamour, among others. She's also the director of the journalism program at Wake Forest University. Her new book is Beyond Innocence, The Life Sentence of Daryl Hunt, which is published by our friends at Atlantic Monthly Press. Phoebe, welcome to the program. Oh, well, thank you so much for having me. I'm really happy to be here with you on Zoom. It's an honor to have you here, Phoebe. And first, Phoebe, you started this story, which turned into a book in 2003 when you were writing for the Winston-Salem Journal. For our listeners who are unfamiliar, as I was before beginning this book, can you give us a synopsis of the story you began 19 years ago in 2003? Sure. So in 2003, uh, Daryl Hunt, who was from Winston-Salem, had been in prison for about 19 years, um, and he had been claiming innocence all that time and had a strong network of supporters here in Winston-Salem. He'd been arrested um, for a horrific crime in, uh, well, he was arrested in September of 1984. The crime happened in August of 1984 in downtown Winston-Salem. young copy editor actually at the newspaper was raped and brutally stabbed to death. And through a series of events, which um, I will detail in the book, uh, Daryl Hunt was arrested within a month and convicted. And um, by 2003, he'd had lost two trials and every level of appeals all the way up to the US Supreme Court. But there was a new law in North Carolina that allowed um, people who have been convicted of crimes to ask for a new round of DNA testing to run against these databases of uh, DNA evidence, which now seem very familiar to people who watch crime shows on TV, but was pretty new in 2003. Mm. And so he, he filed a motion to ask for new DNA testing. And at that time, we had fairly new editors at the Winston-Salem Journal. And I uh, was the news columnist at the journal, but they asked me to take a fresh look at the case, which is what I did. And we presented it as a eight part narrative um, Mm. that didn't make the claim that Daryl Hunt was innocent, but it exposed holes in the case so that many people who read the series saw it in a new way and began to think of him as innocent. And the series also led uh, the state to to do this new round of DNA testing, which through a series of really remarkable, almost miraculous um, flukes uh, led to the identification of the real rapist in the case. So in other words, led to solving this 19 year old crime and Daryl Hunt was released and shortly thereafter exonerated. Mm. Yeah, thank you so much, Phoebe. Um, that was really long, but it's actually a really complicated case. So I'm sorry if that was so long. That wasn't long at all. That was perfect and um, an excellent synopsis. Thank you so much. Um, you state 
that North Carolina was or is known as a, quote, training ground for journalism. Um, Can you explain this? What is North Carolina uh, or why is North Carolina known as a training ground for journalism? Yeah, so in, in the late 80s and 90s, when I moved here from New York City, there mm-hmm. were really strong newspapers in North Carolina. There was the Charlotte Observer, the Raleigh News and Observer, the Greensboro News and Record, and the Winston-Salem Journal, and mm-hmm. a host of smaller newspapers that were also really strong. Mm-hmm. I've never really thought about how these papers became so strong, mm-hmm. but I'm sure it has to do with the fact that um, uh, UNC Chapel Hill has a really great journalism school. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was considered a really good place um, state to get your start in journalism. And I moved here from New York City. Um, I was in my late 20s. I'd finished up a master's program at Columbia University. And mm-hmm. it, um, among other places, I looked in North Carolina because the reputation of the newspapers was so strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I have some very fond memories of growing up reading the Charlotte Observer where I was growing up uh, every morning. Um, You write that, quote, in the newsroom, in deference to your readers into the city's largest employer, (laughs) that you didn't state as fact that cigarettes caused cancer, but hedged with the attribution of, quote, some medical experts say, uh, end quote. Phoebe, first let me say that I understand, but uh, why wouldn't the Winston-Salem Journal state that cigarettes are dangerous? What would have happened if you had done so? Um, I mean, it wasn't that we didn't state they were dangerous. We didn't Mm. state it as um, fact, as as, Mm. as sort of undisputed fact. Mm. So what would have happened is... um, you know, so many of our readers then worked worked for Reynolds Tobacco or were retired for Reynolds Tobacco or their parents had worked from Reynolds Tobacco or they were farmers who grew tobacco. So the, the tobacco culture was so strong that um, I think the, the paper, you know, I didn't even really question it at the time, but I think mm. the paper felt that it would be offensive to our readers to to challenge, you know, their livelihood, basically. And yeah. it was still a time, and I don't know if this was the case in Charlotte, but people smoked indoors everywhere. I mean, I remember yep. going to the grocery store, and I'd never seen this in New York. I mean, people would be leaning over the produce section, you know, with a cigarette dangling from their mouth. And um, nobody thought thought anything of it. A couple of years after I moved to Winston-Salem, there was a lunch restaurant downtown that banned smoking. And, um, you know, they went out of business because no, so many people, I don't think there was a formal boycott, but uh, people wouldn't go there. Mm. So there was, it was just this, it was part of the fabric of the community. And, um and an understanding of what this community was built on. Yeah. And it, um, I definitely have memories of people smoking indoors everywhere. I live North Carolina, South Carolina, California. Um, and I remember how people were 
troubled um, or elated depending when um, the indoor smoking laws everywhere change. But as far as the journalism goes, I mean, I'm reminded of, um, you know, West Virginia journalism, for example, not necessarily writing about the dangers of coal mining. Uh, Exactly. Yeah, or things of that nature. Well, um, thank you, Phoebe. Uh, that didn't last forever at the Winston-Salem right. Journal. I mean, kind of in the late 90s, we were writing about all kinds of um, questions having to do with dangers of cigarette smoking and tobacco. In fact, I did wrote a series of articles, and I let me remember, I can remember exactly when it was because I was pregnant with my son. So it was 1996, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And looking at infant mortality in Forsyth County mm-hmm. and one of the factors that contributed to low um, weight, low birth weight babies was smoking and smoking rates were really high in this part of the state. So, I mean, it wasn't as though we couldn't deal with these issues, but mm-hmm. it, even that was considered kind of groundbreaking to 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 write about that. Yeah, absolutely. I understand. Um, Thank you, Phoebe. You write that you learned about Southern justice, capital S, capital J, uh, from the district attorney, H.W. Butch Zimmerman, whose office was dedicated with Confederate memorabilia. In 2022, this would, of course, be hugely problematic. um, At least I hope so. What was it like seeing this office back then? Was it as shocking as it would be now? Well, it was completely shocking to me because I was 27. I'd been raised in New York City. Mm -hmm. Um, I went to school in Chicago, moved back to New York. I'd never, I don't think I'd ever been in the South until I, you know, walked into the, my little bureau office in Lexington, North Carolina. And shortly thereafter, you know, made the rounds and met all the local figures. So I was, I was, Dumbfounded. I'd never seen anything like that. Um, I don't believe it would it was shocking to to people here, but yeah, it was stunning to me. Um, mm. I suppose at the time I just found it so interesting. I don't remember being um, um, offended. What I remember was just feeling like I had stepped into an unfamiliar, another world, a place that was just completely unfamiliar to me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember um, when I moved away from, from the South, I did my undergraduate work at um, University of South Carolina in Columbia, where at the time the Confederate flag was flying over the state house building. Mm-hmm, I remember. Yeah. Um, then I moved to California for a while and came back to visit Columbia. And I remember the first time seeing the Confederate flag when I had returned to the South, just how right. shocking it was after living in a completely different environment, especially. Yeah. Now, um, well, I will say I spent a lot of time growing up in upstate New York in a very rural part of upstate New York. So it's where, which is a pretty, or at least was when I was growing up, a pretty bigoted um, part of the country. So I had been exposed to that, but certainly not to the symbols of the Confederacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Thank you, Phoebe. Um, You write, uh, quote, if I wondered about his, Daryl Hunt's life Mm -hmm. in prison, uh, once your interviews with him concluded, um, you didn't ask about Mm -hmm. it. 
but now those questions haunt you. And Phoebe, my question for you is if you were able to ask Daryl those questions now, what would you ask him? Oh my gosh. I would have so many questions. Mm -hmm. Um, um, you know, I would want to know which, you know, the, the book really explores the, the subject of the trauma of the injustice he, he suffered, which has to do both with just the actual trauma of being wrongly convicted, mm-hmm. plus the trauma he faced in, in prison. And so I would want to know all the details. I would want to know, you know, what it was like to be in solitary confinement. I would really want to know what it was like to have to walk around. Um, it, when he became Muslim, in a sense, he had bodyguards. Other Muslim men would walk with him. I would really want to know what it was like to, um, you know, to deal with skinheads in, in prison and how he went about not just protecting himself physically, but but mentally, how how he dealt with it. Um, I suppose I'd want to know, you know, what I mean, there's just so much. I don't even know how to answer the question, but I think it would come in in terms of understanding both the details of the events, but also his his mental state. And, and the other thing that this that I learned in this book is that in spite of the horror of prison, um, one thing that happens is that people develop a, um, you know, a, a social structure within the prison mm-hmm. and develop friendships. And there, there's, you know, people are human. And so there's human connection that develops. And and there was a, a lot of that that I came to understand from reading some of his journals, but I would really want to know more about, about the solidarity um, that he found and the, the, the activism that he was beginning to um, do in prison and um, the, the friendships that he developed. Um, so I think I'd be really interested in, in the full full humanity of what of what that 19 years in prison was all about yeah absolutely and i i cannot imagine um well thank you phoebe listeners we are going to take a short break for a word from our sponsor and then i will be right back with phoebe zerwick the book and podcast is sponsored by libro fm audiobooks Libro FM lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore, Quail Ridge Books. You can pick from more than 100,000 audiobooks, including New York Times bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers around the country. With Libro.fm, you'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there. You know the name. But you'll be part of a much different story, one that supports community. Listeners of Bookin can get a three-month audiobook membership for the price of one. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and enter Bookin, B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space. With each listen, take pride in knowing that you're supporting local bookstores. I'm back with Phoebe Zerwick, author of Beyond Innocence, which is published by our friends at Atlantic Monthly Press. Phoebe, um, this is a book about Daryl Hunt, and um, what I want to ask you about besides Daryl is the murder victim. Uh, can you tell mm-hmm. us a little bit about her? Yeah. 
So Deborah Sykes was, you know, in a way somebody I could, can really relate to if I think back to myself in my 20s. So she was uh, 25. Mm -hmm. She was in her second or third job at a newspaper. It was probably her second job. She'd graduated from UNC Chapel Hill in journalism, and we talked about the great UNC Chapel Hill journalism school a little while ago. And um, she was um, married, and her husband was living about an. She and her husband were living with in-laws about an hour away while they found looked for a house in Winston Salem. She hadn't been at the journal. At the she was not at the journal. She was at the afternoon paper called the Sentinel. She had been there only a few weeks and she was very frugal. So rather than park in the parking lot, which was kind of right across the street from the journal, she mm. parked on the street, you know, a block away. And because it was an afternoon paper, she um, she had to get to work almost when, when it was almost still dark at around um, 6.30 in the morning. Mm. Um, what else do I know about her? She was really, she was really close to her grandmother. Um, she and her husband were planning to have a child, but not immediately. Um, I believe she was, uh, she was really athletic and, um, and a really, really good copy editor. Mm. Yeah. She, and... actually, she was, a, she was quite a good reporter. She had a real eye for detail. That's something else I remember about her. Mm -hmm. Yeah, thank you, Phoebe. And um, of course, uh, Daryl Hunt was convicted of her murder, but did not murder her, um, was later exonerated. And it is yeah. estimated that 4% of people on death row are innocent. Um, yes. 4% seems like a small number, but in matters of life and death, especially state-mandated life and death, this is much too high. Uh, why is the system broken in this way, and how do we fix it? And I know that's a very large question. Yeah, that is a huge question. So that 4% figure just gets at the um, number of people who on death row who are mm -hmm. wrongly convicted yeah and uh i don't have a good figure for the number of people in the justice in the prison system as a whole who are wrongly convicted but mm -hmm. um uh, most people think it's significantly higher than that four percent yeah um so the kinds of things that are broken um so speaking largely mega system-wide one of the things that's really broken is our reliance on plea bargains to um, adjudicate crimes. So there's a big incentive if you're charged with a with a felony to and there's a big risk of going to trial if you're innocent. Right. So mm -hmm. um, there's a big incentive um, to plead guilty. And also the court system is so overwhelmed that lawyers and the whole system in, uh, is designed to encourage people to to plead guilty. Um, there are big problems with uh, relying on eyewitness identification. And I think the innocence movement is, is revealed that. So I think it's getting a little bit better. Mm. But um, people think they remember who attacked them or raped them or who they saw in the street at the scene of a crime. But our memory is very, very um, unreliable and uh, 
large number of the wrongful conviction cases involve um, faulty eyewitness identification. Mm -hmm. Another problem with the system is the way police conduct interrogations. So um, it's it actually, especially with teenagers or people who have been traumatized in their life or people with um, low IQs, um, people are really vulnerable to coercive um, invest, um, interrogation techniques. Mm. A lot of the um, forensic analysis that's been that's used in the courtroom is now um, been revealed to be junk science. So I'll, I'll, DNA is still reliable science, but uh, things like ballistics analysis, blood spatter analysis, bite marks, um, a lot of uh, medical um, um, autopsy reports are often attribute the wrong cause of death that leads leads to convictions. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done on the in the whole field of forensic science. And then, you know, I just want to systemically, one thing that Daryl Hunt's case reveals is the power of systemic racism in the justice system. So uh, issues like uh, the way juries are selected, mm -hmm. even the fact that of who gets called to jury duty um, is shaped by systemic racism. So, you know, those jury roles are put together with, um, with from property tax records and, um, and vote um, license, uh, driver's license records. And if you have a felony conviction, you can't serve on a jury. So um, a lot of issues conspire to make um, our, our, our court system tainted by, by historic and systemic racism. Yeah, and I want to ask you another big question about uh, systemic racism. In 1985, when Daryl Hunt went to prison, mm -hmm. uh, there were 9,274 Black men and women incarcerated in North Carolina. By 2003, the number was 20,463. Right. Uh, why are we jailing so many people specifically? Why are we jailing so many Black people exponentially more than we were, say, 35, 40 years ago? Yeah. So, first of all, I mean, this is such a complicated question that really dates back to slavery. And uh, and Jim Crow, and back really since the beginning of our penal system in the United States, we've been jailing more black people than white people. Mm -hmm. So during slavery, of course, black people had no rights. So the whole system was a, a form of incarceration. But then um, after emancipation, during Jim Crow, there were so many. Um, so many offenses that um, led to jail sentences for black people, minor offenses that led to jail sentences. And the, the whole system kind of geared up with the war on crime and the war on drugs in the 70s and the 80s and into the 90s, where 
sentencing um, disproportionately affected black people. And a lot of that had to do with the different sentencing for crack cocaine versus powder cocaine. So a lot of us, a lot of people have talked about that. Uh, and crack cocaine, of course, is just a different form of cocaine, but it was uh, endemic more in in cities and in black communities and white people snorted cocaine, but the sentencing for crack cocaine was so much higher. Um, but the but the history of, of the disproportionate imprisonment of black people dates back way before the crack epidemic. Um, and, you know, it, it, you can see it in statistics having to do with um, rape. So black men in North Carolina were in prison and then executed for rape all through the 20th century when white men were not. Um, so, and that has to do with racism and with that myth that was perpetuated even till today that, that black men are super predators or are, are rapists or sexual offenders. And that has to do with um, a, a culture of racism. It has nothing to do with um, who, who's in fact um, committing crimes in this country. Right. And I haven't looked at the statistics to see if the numbers have also grown exponentially between 2003 in 2022, um, but does the for-profit uh, private prison system have anything to do with this? Like the the need that these prisons uh, oh, feel to keep question. themselves full? Yeah, that's a great question. Well, first, getting back to the statistics themselves, mm. the the gap between it's really hard to talk about statistics and yeah. make it, turn it into English, but mm. the gap between uh, black imprison rates and white imprisonment rates is actually narrowing. So it's getting mm -hmm. better. Mm -hmm. In 2003, I think the ratio was seven to one, and now it's five to one, and it's it's getting smaller. Um, and there are lots of theories about why that's happening. One of them has to do with drug sentencing and who, who's using who's using drugs. The other has to do with a lot of the reform efforts, which are happening more in cities rather than rural areas. And so black people are actually benefiting from some of the reforms and white people in rural America are not. Um, but the, the question you raised about uh, private, private prisons, I, I, I don't know if that's affected the disproportionate imprisonment rates among black people versus white people, it's certainly affected the conditions that people are living in in prison. Mm -hmm. And it's affected because those, those prisons have to make a profit. And it's also affected the, the politics of our justice system. So those there's there's always been a push to put prisons in into rural um communities, even when they're not um, built, when they're not uh, privately run, because they're a good source of jobs. So the legislators push to have prisons in their districts. But now there's now there's a strong lobbying effort to promote prisons. So it certainly has a lot to do with the with the politics that's standing in the way of, of 
reforming our, our criminal justice system, or some people call it the criminal legal system, mm. given that maybe there's not a lot of justice in the in the legal system. Yeah, right. Thank you, Phoebe. Um, back to uh, Winston-Salem specifically. Yeah. Um, it doesn't seem, at least in the very beginning uh, of this case or the discovery of the murder of Debbie Sykes, it doesn't seem that Winston-Salem police at the time were taking this case very seriously. Uh, When a gentleman from the newspaper called to report that Debbie Sykes was missing, he overheard the police call him that dumbass from the newspaper. Um, Why were the police so antagonistic towards the media in Winston-Salem? Oh, I've never really thought about that question. Um, You know, there's always tension between, um, um, a healthy tension between a police department and a newspaper, but I don't know if if that tension was there in the the 80s or if they just thought that, um, you know, a missing person was not yet worthy of, of police looking, of police attention. So Mm -hmm. it was really only a few hours that the police were not taking Mm -hmm. this seriously. Uh, But the, you know, newspapers do question, question authority. And I don't know if in 1984, there was tension between the paper and the police department or not. Um, But that's, Mm -hmm. that's really something to think about. There is now some tension between um, law enforcement and 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 the newspaper, and there has been for some time because the newspaper pushes back against uh, official accounts of mm. of of what happens in the justice system. But I don't know if that was the case in in 1984 or not. Right. Um, yeah. And it was only a few hours, but in a missing persons uh, mm-hmm. case, a few hours can literally be the difference between life and death. Absolutely. Um, yeah. As we all know. Well, thank you, Phoebe. Um, finally, uh, Daryl Hunt should not have been arrested. Um, he should still be alive yeah. today, having never experienced being in prison for murder an experience that led um, to his death. Um in one way or another, this type of thing happens way more than it should. What resources are available for these people who have been wrongly imprisoned for decades in order um, to integrate them back into society in a way that sets them up for success? Or is an apology or maybe some money all that someone should expect in a case like Daryl Hunt's? Sure. So, I mean, that's a great question about um, people who've been wrongly convicted and, and what's available to, to them. And it really depends on the state that, that the wrongful conviction arose in. So North Carolina uh, pays compensation of, I think it's now up to $50,000 a year. Some states pay nothing. Uh, in Daryl's case, he also um, sued the city for uh, civil rights offenses and mm-hmm. won a, a substantial settlement. So he, he was set financially, but, but I think what you're really getting at is, is more subtle questions having to do with re-entry mm-hmm. and the difficulty of coming back into, into society, even, even if your uh, basic needs have been taken care of. And that's really what I'm, 
um, I've tried to explore in this book is the is the trauma and the psychological impact. Mm-hmm. And what one of the things that I'm I've become I learned in this book was how committed by writing the book was how committed Daryl Hunt was to re-entry, not just for people who'd been wrongly convicted, but for anyone in prison, because he really saw the humanity of anybody he was, of everyone he was in prison with. And so he devoted a good part of his life and energy to a re-entry project that he founded. Mm-hmm. And the kinds of things we can do to help people coming home for prison are both systemic and maybe individual. So I, there are about 600,000 people being released from prison every year out of a prison population of over 2 million. And they, there are enormous systemic barriers um, to successful reentry. Um, so, at the the uh, American Bar Association um, studied this a couple of years ago and found thirty five thousand statutes, regulations, local laws, state laws, all kinds of systemic barriers to getting a job, getting housing, applying for a loan, going to college, getting financial aid. Some places you can't even get a license to be a barber. All kinds of basic fundamental rights stand in the way of people who have felony records or even misdemeanor records. Mm-hmm. And so, and then the there's no real comprehensive re-entry system. So there's a lot of, there are small community programs, um, but they're all understaffed. And so people, you know, enroll in these programs if they're lucky, they might get some job training, but then they go to apply for a job and they're not eligible because they have a criminal record. Uh, they go to try to get housing, but you know, the landlord doesn't want people with criminal record in their housing, in their apartment complex. And so the recidivism rate is enormous. And the idea that you've paid your, you've done your, you paid your price and now you're just going to start over again, just like the rest of us, it's the, the um, barriers are enormous. So, you know, I think at a, at a small private level, you know, we can all do our part to give give somebody a second chance. You know, if you have a small business, uh, hire somebody who has a criminal record and, and mm. give somebody a chance. If you um, have our landlord, you know, give somebody a chance, but systemically it's going to take systemic change. And that means everything from looking at sentencing guidelines in your states, you know, support legislation or support legislators who are interested in reducing sentences for crimes, mm-hmm. uh, support in your own professional organizations, relaxing some of these restrictions. Uh, I think it means, um, you know, supporting judges. You know, a lot of places judges are elected. In North Carolina, judges are elected. And judges who are tough on crime tend to get elected. So when it's time to go and vote, you know, think about the kind of judge that you want. Think about the kind of Supreme Court judge you want. And 
the other thing that I think happens is that we're so focused in, in our in our political life on national office that a lot of us, and myself included, don't really think about the fact that the policies that affect, that shape our criminal justice system are, are shaped at the state level, not at the national level. And so we really need to understand what's, who's gonna support the kind of system in, in our states um, that, that lead to shorter sense sentencing, alternatives to prison, and real meaningful support for people coming home for, from prison. Yeah, and 600,000 um, a year is a gigantic number, and we have to do something to help these people out less today enter um, a cycle of imprisonment, release, imprisonment again. Um, well, thank you, Phoebe, and thank you for writing this story in the newspaper initially and then in this book. Listeners, I've been speaking with Phoebe Zerwig, author of Beyond Innocence, the Life Sentence of Daryl Hunt, which is published at Atlantic Monthly Press. Phoebe, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Once again, I would like to thank Phoebe Zerwig for joining me. Copies of Beyond Innocence, The Life Sentence of Daryl Hunt can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Bookin'. Once again, I would like to thank Phoebe Zerwig for joining me. Copies of Beyond Innocence, The Life Sentence of Daryl Hunt can be ordered from www.quailridgebooks.com with free shipping. I would also like to thank our sponsor, Libro FM Audiobooks. Please navigate over to Libro.fm and enter the promo code BOOKIN, that's B-O-O-K-I-N, in the promo code space to get one free audiobook and support your favorite local independent bookstore, in the process. My name is Jason Jeffries, and this has been Booking. Alrighty. Alrighty. Um, are you on the Jason Mott? I probably not. I think there's like a call with Jason and Marion that Renee looped me into. So yeah, and I knew Marion was going to loop you in, and Marion looks forward to to meeting you. Um, you may have met before, but you'll meet again. And then she, um, yeah, you you know we work with her a lot. Um, yeah. Not so much since COVID, but more we will once everybody opens back up. So that's cool. No, my um, yeah. I I 
got Jason to agree to do the event and hooked him up with Marion. And and then I kind of backed away. So (laughs) he's a really cool guy that I have fun on that call. I will. Um, And I'll let you know what I hear from the millions. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you very much. All right. Bye. Bye.